Well, good morning. If you're newish here, my name is Carson Cobb. I'm one of the pastors here. And as we enter the season of Advent, we're going to be preaching a series that's somewhat of a part two or a sequel to something that we did years ago. We're going to be looking at the songs of Christmas to see how they lead us to the Christ of Christmas. So um, this is the Songs of Christmas, volume two. And I think a a series like this can be helpful for a few reasons. Uh, Christmas carols are really one of the last remaining vestiges of the truly Christian nature of Christmas left in our society. You know, between the commercialization and the sentimentalization of trees and Santa and Rudolph and Hallmark movies, gifts and peppermint, hot chocolate, many of those things which are fine, I suppose, except for the Hallmark movies maybe. Uh, It's, you know, it's easy for Christ to get squeezed out. It's almost like there's still no room for him, you know. But Christmas carols have stayed with us. And you can still hear them as a Spotify Christmas playlist shuffles or as you shuffle your way through Target doing Christmas shopping. You know, Christmas carols provide a tether to the really astonishing truth of Christmas as they reflect on what in the world does it mean that the Son of God would take on human nature and be born into the world like one of us. You know, it just makes me wonder if, you know, on Judgment Day, if Americans will have no good excuses about what we knew or didn't know about Christmas. You know, I didn't know about God and who Jesus was and all of that. And it's like, well, really? You didn't stop and listen to any of those songs that were playing in the background that had amazing truth about, um, about who God was and what Jesus did. But also, even for Christians, you know, it's, uh, it's just so easy for us to sing Christmas carols out of rote habit or sentimental nostalgia, but to be fail to be moved to truly worshiping Christ because we haven't really given a whole lot of thought as to what it is that we're singing. And Christmas carols used to be much this way for me too. You know, when those first notes of O Holy Night would start rolling on the piano, my eyes would roll a little bit and I would feel the first inklings of a yawn in the back of my throat. And I could just kind of thought, here we go. You know, another boring, melodramatic, semi-operatic Christmas song. But all that began to change for me a few years ago when I started taking the time to slow down and ponder the lyrics to various carols. And as I came across some really great uh, renditions of the carols that musically fit the lyrics just perfectly, like Sovereign Grace has a version of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where the tempo and the simplicity of the music provides the leisurely pace that you need to ingest the lyrics. Or Tommy Prophet uh, has a version of Oh Holy Night where you hear these two incredibly talented vocalists in a duet just straining uh, at their max capacity to convey the power of the words that they're singing about. So do yourself a favor and listen to both of those uh, this season. But now I've found that Christmas carols can be a ripe place for deeply meaningful reflection on the miracle of the Incarnation. That God, the Son of God, the Word of God, would come to dwell with us. So that's what we're going to reflect on today, using two of the most famous verses from one of the most famous Christmas hymns, O Holy Night. So this hymn, O Holy Night, it has has a fascinating origin story. Uh, It was written in the 1840s by a French merchant who wrote poetry on the side, Placide Capot, and it was written originally in French. So Monsieur Capot's parish uh, Catholic church was celebrating the restoration of their organ, and the priest asked Capot to write a poem uh, to celebrate the occasion as Christmas time was approaching. Now, Capot was apparently not even a Christian believer. He was supposedly an ardent atheist, but he agreed to write the poem anyway. 
And he turned to the Gospel of Luke and began to study it in order to, to write. And then after Capot wrote the lyrics, he collaborated with a friend who was a Jewish guy named Adolf Adams to write the music. And it was soon after performed uh, by a wonderfully trained opera singer uh, at this Catholic church, and it was a smash hit. And so other Catholic churches started having it uh, performed as well until the Catholic church found out that this was written by two men who didn't even believe in the Christ, at which point they tried to squash it. But it remained very popular and eventually, as you know, it made its way across the Atlantic where a Unitarian minister named John Sullivan Dwight, whose theology was far from what we would call orthodox, he translated the lyrics into the most famous English version that we know today. So what do you do with a Christmas carol composed by an atheist, a Jewish guy, and a heretic? You know? uh, I'll say a little more on this at the, on, at the end, but for now I would just say, well, it depends on what it actually says. And despite its seemingly dubious origins, I think the carol itself can help us understand four things about the incarnation of Christ. Four things. First, the incarnation is distinguishing. Second, it's dignifying. Third, it's humbling. And fourth, it's captivating. So the incarnation of Jesus, it's distinguishing, it's dignifying, it's humbling, and it's also captivating. So first, what do I mean? The incarnation is distinguishing. The song begins like this. You know it. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. And then you skip on down to the end of that verse, and it's, O night divine, O night when Christ was born, O night divine, O night, O night divine. So why does the song begin this way? You know, O holy night, and then say, O night divine, three times at the end of the verse. Is there anything holy about the night itself? In many ways, it's just an ordinary night, people trying to get together and get their taxes paid, right? And yet in another sense, the night of Christ's birth is a sacred moment, it's marvelous and mysterious. It's the night that the Son of God becomes the Son of Mary. So why do I say that the incarnation is distinguishing? And what do I mean by that? The incarnation of Christ, that the Son of God would dwell with us, it's a distinguishing mark of Christianity as compared to any other belief system out there. It's truly unique. And it's unique in a couple of ways. Look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, in the beginning was the Word. So the beginning of John's gospel. And it sounds like the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God. You know, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. The incarnation is unique amongst all other faiths because it says that the Son of God, this word, as we'll see in a second, once for all, became human. Other faiths, like the Baha'i faith, would say that God has sent several manifestations of himself into the world as heralds. Islam would say that God assuming human nature is just straight up blasphemy. But the Bible says that the word who is distinct from God the Father, yet is God also, and here we begin to peek into the mysterious doctrine of the Trinity, but this word, skip down to John 1, 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. So the word who is in very nature God came to live as one of us, among us, to unite himself to us in a 
permanent, unique, not-to-be-repeated-again kind of way. And of course, modern secular beliefs like atheism or agnosticism would see this as utter folly. First of all, God. Second of all, God joining us as a man, born of a virgin, yada, yada. Like, this is just so outlandish, you know. Now, uh, author Rebecca McLaughlin, she has a really helpful little book, and I mean little, like 60 pages. And in it, she talks about this idea of the, the virgin birth. You know, Jesus entered into the human race, not in the normal fashion, without a human father. Isn't this just too outlandish or weird to believe? And she takes an interesting route when addressing it. She talks about uh, the Big Bang and cosmology. Because even the most renowned physicists like Stephen Hawking have grappled mightily with the question of how the universe could have started from what seems like a point of nothingness. What was the cause? Where did it all come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? What made the Big Bang go bang? And astrophysicists don't have a great answer to that. Hawking suggests that maybe the laws of physics and the laws of nature, like gravity, have just always existed. And because they're there, the universe just had to get kickstarted somehow. But other secular atheistic professors like Paul Davies have critiqued Stephen Hawking by saying that, well, if you assume these eternal laws must be there no matter what, they just happen to exist and simply must be accepted as a given, Paul Davies says, well, these qualities now have the same status as an unexplained transcendent God. One author said it like this, Christians believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. Atheists believe in the virgin birth of the universe. Choose your miracle. So in other words, believing something like the Son of God becoming human isn't so far-fetched if you believe in a creator God who made all things, which is not so far-fetched, who can and does intervene and still cares about things, so much so that he would literally put his own skin in the game. So McLaughlin uh, quotes another astronomy professor, Jonathan Fang, who is a Christian, who says, what's truly amazing about the Christian faith is the idea that the God who made the universe from quarks to galaxies also cares enough about us to be born as a human and to suffer and die to bring forgiveness and new life to broken people. So if God can create quarks and galaxies, can he not exercise his power in a way that he could step into his creation? The artist on the canvas, the author in the story, the composer inside the song. Author Max Licato put it like this, the all-powerful in one instant made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an, became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. This is a holy Strange night indeed. But then secondly, the this song helps us see how the incarnation is unique or distinguishing by emphasizing Jesus shattering entrance into the world. It's compared to light piercing through a dark night. Again, the song begins, O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. And this isn't just to paint a backdrop of like, oh, isn't this nice clear skies when Jesus was born? He's getting at something. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared 
and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Now, Capot, the writer, got these ideas from both the first chapters of Luke's gospel and John's gospel. Since we've been in John, let's start with him. Chapter 1, verse 4. John says, In him, the word, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in Luke's gospel, Zechariah says this of his son, John the Baptist, that he will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the word, Jesus Christ, God's word in flesh is compared to light breaking into our world of darkness, the sun coming up on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. You see, the incarnation distinguishes Christianity from all other belief systems in that it says God must break in from the outside to us. We can't just go find our way to him. We can't work our way up to him. He has to skydive down and rescue us. It's an invasion, the incarnation is. And it means we couldn't find God through any sort of internal spiritual quest or advancing our way through any religious system. The incarnation means we were all floundering in our sin and error, pining, and he must come for us on a daring rescue mission. He has to come in from the outside and swoop in and save us. Uh, some of you remember in the fall of 2010, uh, I mean, we were all watching it, if we were alive then, we're captivated by the story of the trapped Chilean miners. These guys were trapped beneath 2,000 feet of solid rock and 33 men were, were there. The collapse of one of the main tunnels had sealed their exit and thrust them into survival mode. So they ate two spoonfuls of tuna, a sip of milk, and a morsel of peaches every other day. And for two months, they continued like this, praying for someone to save them. And on the surface above, the Chilean rescue team, they worked around the clock with NASA, with experts, and they designed a 13-foot-tall capsule that they drilled first a communication hole and then an excavation tunnel. And on October 13th, 2010, the men began to emerge. High fives, hugs, victory chants. A great-grandfather came out, a 44-year-old who was planning a wedding was set free, and a 19-year-old. All these had different stories, but they all made the decision to trust someone else to save them. No one returned the offer of rescue with, no thanks, I'm good. If you just give me a new drill, I'm pretty sure I can find my way out of here. You know, they, they had stared in their stone tomb long enough to realize we need help. We need someone to penetrate this dark world and pull us out. That's what the incarnation of Christ says. You need help. You need someone to penetrate this world and to pull you out. And God has done it. No other faith or religion works like that. So the song helps us see that the incarnation is distinguishing. It's a distinguishing mark of Christianity. But secondly, the song helps us understand that the incarnation is also dignifying. Dignifying. What do, I, what do I mean by this? Back to the song. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. 
There's something incredibly unique and wonderful about the incarnation in how it dignifies humanity. It doesn't deify humanity like some religions might, but for the Lord of heaven to choose to take on a human nature and even to retain it after his resurrection. Isn't this a massive statement regarding God's disposition towards human personhood? I mean, look with me at Hebrews 2, verse 14. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It says that Jesus was made like us in every respect, save that of our sinfulness. Now, does your soul have any worth? The Son of God was willing to partake of our same nature and become truly human with a human body and a human brain, human through and through, not just as a facade or an appearance of humanity, so that he would deliver us from death and judgment. What could be more dignifying to the human race than this? Again, author Max Lucado, he says, it's uncomfortable to think of God in this way. It's much easier to keep the humanity out clean the manure from around the major, wipe the sweat out of his eyes, pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There is something about keeping him only divine that keeps him distant, packaged, and predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the muck and mire of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. Only by taking on humanity can Jesus stand in the place of humanity. And I think this says volumes about the worth of humanity in God's eyes. Again, Rebecca McLaughlin in her little book points out that secular thinkers and um, professors like historian Yuval Harari have rightly observed that without a story like the Christian story, we are left without a whole lot of objective grounds for human worth or human rights. Uh, she quotes, again, Yuval Harari, historian. He says, as far as we can tell, from a purely scientific viewpoint, human life has absolutely no meaning. Humans are the outcome of blind evolutionary processes that operate without goals or purpose. Our actions are not part of some divine cosmic plan. Hence, any meaning that people ascribe to their lives is just a delusion. Any meaning you ascribe to your life is just a delusion. Do you agree with that? I mean, deep down, do you really think that any meaning you have in your life at the end of the day is just a delusion? The incarnation of Jesus gives you a solid reason to feel the worth, the true worth of your life, of every life, the worth of your soul. Many people wrestle with this idea of their life actually mattering to anyone in the grand scheme of things. But the incarnation says that you matter more than you can possibly imagine. You matter to God himself. And he himself, not a hired gun or third party or salvation bounty hunter, he himself 
would step out of heaven, put on humanity, and rescue us. This is radically dignifying to humanity in a way that I think no other belief system is. Now, lest we get too puffed up about ourselves, however, the incarnation is also radically humbling. It's dignifying, but it's also humbling. The third verse of A Holy Night goes like this. Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. How does Jesus teach us to love one another? And why would we say that the slave is our brother? Well, if Jesus had to come for each of us, this means that I am no better than you and you are no better than me or anyone else. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, asks you to imagine that at a Christmas morning arrives or you're at a Christmas party and it comes time to open your gifts. So you open the first gift and it's a book on dieting. Okay. And then you pull the paper off of another gift from a friend and it's another book entitled Overcoming Selfishness. By accepting these gifts, you know, you're admitting something about yourself. Thank you very much for indeed I am overweight and obnoxious. (laughs) Some gifts are hard to receive because accepting them means accepting something about yourself that isn't pleasant. The incarnation is humbling because it means that we were so utterly helpless that it took the birth and death of the Son of God to save us. You see, the Christian message of grace, that we were all so dead in our own sins and none of us could do a thing to appease God, so he had to come down here to be born in a dirty manger and die on a bloody cross. This is truly a message that is a great equalizer. It slashes our pride and truly teaches us to see one another as equals. Regardless of your earning potential or your rap sheet, envy, competition, insecurity, these can all be thrown out the window if you will look long enough at the manger. Christmas should engender in each of us a deep, deep sense of humility. And it's these implications of the gospel message that led Paul to write things like this in Galatians. He says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one, equal in standing before God in Christ Jesus. And this is why, O Holy Night, it became a popular hymn Uh, for the abolitionist movement in America. You know, it was translated into English in the 1850s, just before the Civil War. And sadly, I, I don't think I could picture too many churches in the South at that time singing this particular carol. Many of them would have had slaves in attendance in their church services, and if they did sing this, I just wonder if it got really quiet in this verse about those lines with the slave being a brother and oppression ceasing in the name of Jesus. I hope it got quiet because it is deep hypocrisy when Christian doctrine in the Bible is twisted and weaponized to oppress others. We just talked about how the incarnation of Jesus is meant to dignify human persons, not to denigrate them. I mean, Jesus himself, he begins his ministry in this way. In his hometown of Nazareth, he 
uh, on the Sabbath, goes to the synagogue. And he's given a scroll from the book of Isaiah to read. So he finds this place in the book of Isaiah. And aloud in front of the whole synagogue, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he puts the scroll down and says, And today, this is coming true right now. It's a big statement. In his name, all oppression shall cease, the carol says. But how can this be the case? There still seems to be quite a bit of oppression happening in the world today, and some of it happens in Jesus' name, in his name. How is Jesus seeing to it that any of it is stopped? Well, there's two ways, I think, that Jesus' name can bring an end to all oppression. The first is his preferred way, which is to change the hearts of oppressive people such that they see how grievous their sin is and they plead the blood of Jesus to forgive them and make them a new person. This is the story of the great hymn writer, John Newton, who I've been reading a little bit about um, lately. He, He was the captain of a slave ship until his Christian conversion when he was deeply broken over his life of perdition. And so he wrote a hymn out of this experience. And it goes like this. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that thou mayest live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace. It seals my pardon, too. This is how Jesus longs to end oppression, by breaking the hearts of those who are oppressed, that they would repent and find mercy. But if they will not have it, he will end oppression by his final rod of justice. The Psalms say it like this, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself, for you have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Or put succinctly in the words of Johnny Cash, sooner or later, God will cut you down. You see, Jesus' incarnation is the guarantee that he is deeply invested in this world and will return to put it right. But his first coming is just that, his first. He will return to put all things right, not as a baby, but as the king, judge, ruler, and lord of every man and woman. In his name, all oppression, now or later, shall cease.
But then lastly, this song helps us see that the incarnation is meant to be captivating. It's meant to be captivating. Each stanza of the song ends with a call to response of full-bodied worship. You know, fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices. Christ is the Lord. Praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. His power and glory evermore proclaim. You see, you haven't really gotten the incarnation if it hasn't gotten to you. You cannot long dwell on the astonishing truth that the Son of God who made the universe, the darling of heaven, would come in love and humility to be bound to a human body that he might save us without falling to your knees in worship and then rising again to tell of him in witness. Or I say you should not be able to long dwell on this without doing that. Again, it's stunning to me that this hymn was written by a man who did not believe any of it. What do you make of that? How can someone be so close yet so far? I mean, it's like the guy was immersed in Christian truth, swimming in a fountain of chocolate without stopping to taste a drop of it. But I think this can be a warning, even even for us who say that we do believe that the truths of Christmas can be so ready on a pen or on a tongue, yet not penetrate the heart. Unfortunately, the happiest part of the story of the Chilean miners is also the saddest part. When the men knew they were trapped, they knew they could not get out, they took stock of their lives and realized they had a lot of regrets. And one of the men, Jose Henriquez, a Christian, began to pray for everyone. And as he got down on his knees, some of the other men joined him. He began to talk to God. You know, we aren't the best men, Lord, but have pity on us. And then he actually got more specific. Victor Segovia knows that he drinks too much. Victor Zamora is too quick to anger. Pedro Cortez thinks about the poor father he's been to his young daughter. Deep down in the cavern with death staring them in the face, the men got real before God and each other. So they would meet each day to share a meager meal, hear a short sermon, and then get on their knees and pray, God, forgive me for the violence of my voice before my wife and my son. Or God, forgive me for abusing the temple of my body with drugs. They confessed to each other as well. I'm I'm sorry I yelled at you on the job. I'm sorry I didn't help carry the water and slacked off. But then the drill bursts through a narrow hole in the rock. The miners get food, supplies, iPads, and they know eventually they're going to be rescued. They find out they're going to be famous and maybe even become rich. And then the confessing stops. The praying stops. My friends, let's not lose sight of what the incarnation means for us. Let's remember what it is to be helpless and to need someone to save us. If the beautiful truth of Christmas is just rote recitation to you, or if the doctrine of the incarnation is just that, a doctrine, then pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken you again to sense the wonder of God become man for us so that you would fall on your knees and proclaim the power and glory of Christ forevermore. Let's pray. So Lord, we ask today that you would use your words and that even as we we shuffle around through our lives, it's such a busy season, as we hear songs like this, we pray that you would use them to renew 
or maybe for the first time, to deeply feel the weight of what it meant for the Son of God to take on flesh for us. May you reignite the mystery and marvel at how you have loved us and how far you have stepped for us. And when we are feeling low, may it dignify us to let us know our worth in your eyes. And when we are feeling proud, may it humble us to know that we are no better than anyone else. But ultimately, Lord, may we be captivated by it so that we would fall to our knees in worship of you and we would be ready to proclaim Christ is Lord and his power and his glory evermore proclaim. And it's through him we pray. Amen.